Hey, for those of you that are just joining us here for the first time, last week we started a brand new series that we're going to be in through the fall. In fact, we're going to be in this series through the end of October, basically. We've simply called it uh, The Secret Place, Finding True Safety in the Midst of Cultural Storms. And Again, I do not need to tell you that we are in the midst of a cultural storm. We are in the midst of a cultural tsunami, the effects of which there is no escape. There is no place to hide. There is no place to run. It has affected every area of our lives. It comes to us in our, in our entertainment. It comes to us in our dinner tables at night. Everywhere we go, we see this cultural war, this cultural storm that we're in. I shared with you last week that for me, and I can't speak for everyone, but for me it feels like our country has unhitched itself from reality and has now hitched itself to the land of make-believe to fantasy, to mythology, to just pretend. And what is sad is that if you do not embrace my fantasy, if you do not support my fantasy and my make-believe, it's not just that we have a matter of a difference of opinions or that we can just agree to disagree. You hate me. You are afraid of me. You are speaking against me from a privileged point of view. You are oppressing me. It's all of this hateful rhetoric. We can no longer sit down and just have a reasonable conversation. Today, it has turned very hostile. We have unhitched from reality and again, steeped now in fantasy and in make-believe. And there's a reason for that. And I shared that with you last week, that... For decades, the predominant mindset in the Western world and even in Europe was that of postmodernism. And postmodernism says there are no absolute truths, that all truth is relative, that it's relative to the individual, it's relative to the times and the culture that you live in, that there is no objective truth, no Uh, fixed standard of truth, but that truth is all uh, subjective. It it is subjective truth. It's subject to my interpretation. It's subject to my personal belief. And this is where we get the idea that what is true for me may not be true for you. What is true for you may not be true for me. We all have to find our own truth and then we live by that. No one has the right to say there is an absolute standard of truth immorality. Now that, again, that was the prevailing thought for decades, but it's waned in recent years. And the reason is, is because it's just not sustainable. Um, It's not a coherent way of thinking because if you follow that to its logical conclusion, at some point you have to justify Hitler and his extermination of six million Jews. You have to, because all that Hitler was doing was what was right in his eyes. All he was doing what was true to him. And so you have to justify it. And the moment that you argue with it and you say, well, he ought to have or he should not have, 
you have immediately appealed to an objective standard of righteousness that is above humanity. Now you're borrowing on the biblical worldview and you defeat your own argument. If there are no absolute truths, then there are no absolute truths and everyone is free to do whatever they want to do and you cannot call them on it because all truth is subject to the believer. Now, that is just not sustainable. Everyone sees that. It's, it's a ridiculous way of, of thinking. But what I shared with you is that researchers are now saying, and only time will prove if this is true or not, but researchers are saying that in 2016 there was a shift that began in the United States of America. Not everyone has bought into this, but since 2016 there is a shift in especially the millennials and and those that are below them. Um, And that is simply that we've moved now from a post-modern thought to a post-truth way of thinking. And if in post-modernism truth was relative, in post-truth it is irrelevant. They don't care. In fact, that's what they would say. They would say, I don't care. They would never deny truth. They would never deny facts. They would just say, I don't care. That may be true. That may be a fact, but I don't care. Because in post-truth thinking, my feelings, my attractions, and my preferences are superior to any facts or any truth. So when we come to a world that is lost and we say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through him, they would say, that may be true, that may be a fact, but I don't care. Because that's not what I feel. That's not attractive to me. That's not what I prefer. And my preferences and my feelings and my emotions are supreme in my life. How do you reason with that? I mean, that is the time that we are living in and that is gaining ground. That's why I say it feels like we've unhitched from reality and we are living now in a land of make-believe. I don't care what facts are. I don't care what truth is because my feelings are what, what determine what is right for me. We didn't get there overnight. It took decades And even last week, we talked about how we could go back to the mid-1800s and even the early 1900s, and we could look at the emergence of men like Charles Darwin and Frederick Nietzsche, and we can look at uh, Sigmund Freud, and we can look at Karl Marx and see how they have impacted Western thought and Eastern European thought for decades, and that's how it really got here, where we got it today. But the truth is, it goes further back than that. And that's what we talked about last week. This goes all the way back to the garden when God created man in his image according to his likeness. And God introduced to man truth. And once truth was introduced to man, it came under fire. First, Satan tried to attack the truth, but when that would not work, he did the best thing that he could have ever done. And that was appeal to the emotions, to appeal to the attractions of man, to appeal to the feelings of Eve. And for the first time, man elevated feelings and emotions above truth 
and God's word and establish that what they felt was more important than what was true before God. And can I tell you, man has been dancing to that tune ever since. For the last 5,000 years, that is the way that man has been living. Solomon, the wisest man that ever walked on this earth outside of Jesus, obviously, wrote this in Proverbs 14, 12. He says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. In Judges 21 and verse 25, it speaks of a particular time in Jewish history where in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Whenever a culture has done what is right in its own eyes, whenever a culture has done what seems right, what feels right to them, that culture, that country, that nation has always declined. Because whenever men do whatever is right in their own eyes, it, it undermines God's original plan. And that is exactly where we are in the United States of America. We may have a president, and we may have those who are in authority, but men pay no attention to authority today. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And that's why we are where we are today, in Jesus' name. Now, listen, as we move on here this morning, and we got a lot of ground to cover, so just buckle up. We're going to be here for a little while. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're going to be here a while, all right? You guys will sit through a two-hour movie and think nothing of it. You can sit here for an hour and hear the word of the Lord. Just saying, all right? The scripture that awakened this whole series to me, believe it or not, because you wouldn't think it would emerge from here, but was Psalm 91. And for those of you who have been in the faith for any length of time, you know that Psalm 91 is perhaps one of the most beloved psalms in the collection of songs that we have. And the reason that we love Psalm 91 is because of the divine protection that is promised within. There's not one of us who have followed Christ for any length of time that at at some point has gone back to Psalm 91 to claim the protective promises of God there. Because in Psalm 91, there is a promised protection from terrors that come by night and by day. From disease and from disaster, from all sorts of evil that consume the lives of others all around us. Of all evil and of all plagues. In Psalm 91, there is a promise that angels will protect us and let no harm come our way. In Psalm 91, we are promised protection from attacks that come from lions and cobras, which we know were symbolic of demonic activity. We are told that when we call upon him, he will answer. When we are in trouble, he will come to our rescue and that he will ultimately reward us with long life. Why wouldn't we celebrate Psalm 91? But what is less celebrated in this psalm is the condition that is required of those who claim that protection. In Psalm 91, in verse 1, it begins, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. It is interesting to note that all of these promises, all of this protection that is promised here is contingent upon the individual dwelling in the secret place of the Most High God. 
If you do not dwell in the secret place of the Most High God, you can claim none of these promises. These promises belong exclusively to those who now dwell in the secret place of the Most High God. The operative word here would be dwelling. Because the word dwelling in the Hebrew here is speaking of taking up a fixed and permanent dwelling in his secret place. It is someone who has taken a fixed and permanent place in Almighty God. He says, if you're a casual visitor, none of this applies to you. You can't come to me on holidays. You can't come to me once a week on Sunday morning. You've got to dwell in the secret place of the Most High God. You fix yourself in Him, and all of these provisions will be yours. But you have to understand that the secret place is not just some mystical thing. It is in truth. Because in verse 4, he says this, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. The secret place is not just a warm and fuzzy feeling that you have. The secret place is abiding in the Word of God. It is abiding in truth. It is submitting your life to the Word of God. And as you submit your life to the Word of God, you have the provision. You have the protection that God has promised you in Jesus' name. If you don't, then you have no refuge. You have no right to claim any of these provisions. It's just that simple. Now, what struck me as I was reading this several months ago in preparation for this time together was the fact that he said the secret place, dwelling in the secret place. That, that is harder to define. We, we've defined it as the word of God. But I think it goes even further than that. Because as I was reading it, I was reminded of another psalm that was written by David. A psalm in which David would use that same phraseology to describe the conception of man. Many of you know it. It's Psalm 139, verses 13 through 15, where David writes, For you form my inner parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Listen, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Now, obviously, what David is talking about here is that the miracle of our conception was only witnessed by God. It was in a secret place where only God could witness it. Now, obviously, mom and dad showed up for that event, but only God was a witness to your conception. It was in a secret place. That's how intimate God is with you. He oversaw, he superintended your birth, your conception. How many of you are thankful that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? And, and, and as, I, as I thought about that, yeah, go ahead and give the Lord praise for that. The, to me, when he talks about the secret place, there are shades of creation in it. And the reason I say that is because obviously no one was watching God when in secret he formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
And obviously no one was with God when he put Adam into a deep sleep and took from him a rib and from that rib made woman. It was all in secret. It is to me speaking of the original design of God. It is speaking when it says of the secret place of of not only abiding in his word but actually abiding in the original design of God and that is that man was created in the image of God according to his likeness. You are not created from apes and from amoeba and from other ancestral animals. No, you were created with purpose. You were created in the image of Almighty God. Male and female, you were created. Can I get a better amen out of that? If you have ever heard the term Imago Dei, It means in the image. It is the belief that we are created in the image of God. That man bears the image of the invisible God. I shared that with you last week. God is a spirit. No one can see him. But God has revealed himself in man. He stamped us with the image of God. So that wherever we go we're bearing the image of the living God almighty. And so our identity is in Him and in Him alone. So as long as we seek to keep our identity in Him and dwell in that identity, there is safety. But when we mess with that identity, when we mess with that original design, that is when we invite disaster and terror, disease, evil, plagues. We open up ourselves to demonic activity and ultimately even to abandonment from God. And that's why Charles Darwin's devastating influence on our world simply cannot be overstated. Charles Darwin removed from humanity his created state that we were in the image of Almighty God and he reduced us to nothing more than highly intelligent animals. That we were nothing but chance and, and, and something that has never been observed and that is evolution. And once you remove man from that order and that design of God, then you invite chaos and all of the social issues that we're dealing with right now and we're going to be dealing with throughout this series are a result of one man saying, you didn't come from God, you came from an animal, so I shouldn't expect you to act like anything but an animal. And believe me or not, Where there is no image of God, there is exploitation of human beings. In all forms, where there is no image of God, you exploit men, you exploit women, you exploit race. You break down sexuality as God defines it, and before long, there is total devastation. We are not where we are today because men and women are not tolerant. We are where we are today because man has rebelled against God. It's that simple. We all know Darwin's book, at least I think most of you do, The Origin of Species. What is less publicized, and and we've done everything we can to skirt this issue, is the original title. The original title of Darwin's book was The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Charles Darwin, and I've got to be very honest because 
there's conflicting information here, and, and I, I don't want to be dishonest here. Charles Darwin has sometimes been viewed as a racist. I don't know how you would look at that. But it does appear in some of his writings that he was sympathetic toward the African slaves and even desired to see their freedom. But he did look down upon them as a weaker and inferior race. And he certainly at least entertained the idea that one day nature would select them to be done away with. And it was his tearing away at man's created image of God that actually made way for racism that we experience in the world today. Was it his intent? Only God knows his heart. But it was his teaching that literally gave way to the exploitation of human beings, including racism. We're going to talk about this today. I, listen, I'm just a preacher. So I'm probably not going to be as deep as some of you want me to be. I, in fact, I scrapped my original message and said, that is not me. I'm trying to sound like a professor. I'm just a preacher, okay? I, so I scrapped it and I went to my heart. I want to ask you a question, okay? Can you remember your earliest experience with racism? Can you remember that? Can you recall your first memory? I didn't, I didn't know how emotional this would be. As you think about that, were you and or your family the victims in that memory? Or were you the participant? Were you the perpetrator? Were you just a witness to it? Were you able to do something but did nothing? Were you able to say something but said nothing? What is your earliest memory? My earliest memory, I've never forgotten this, my earliest memory of racism was when I was in eighth grade eighth grade. Now, I'm not saying that that was the first time, but it's the first memory I have. I'm sure that I heard some racial slurs at some point, but but I remember my first experience was in eighth grade. My family had gone on a two-week vacation. I was telling Kathy last night, it's hard for me to believe, but it would have been this week. I just know because of the timing, it would have been this week we went on a two-week vacation as a family. And this vacation took us down to the south. I won't say where it was. It took us down to the south where we had family that had moved down there years, years before I was even born. But we, you know, we'd see maybe once every year, maybe every other year. We hadn't seen where they lived. And, and what took us down there, ultimately it moved us out to Florida. We went to Disney for a few days. And then we traveled up the East Coast back to Maine. Two weeks. It was a great trip. We st- stopped at this family's home. And I remember, it was the second night that we were there, that the adults were all conversing. I had met cousins I had never met before. And, and so the adults were all talking and At some point, I don't know how, the conversation turned to race. 
and very quickly turned to interracial marriages. And this one family member spoke up and you could visibly see that they were upset and spoke of how evil it was, how ungodly it was. And I just remember my eighth grade, uh, eighth grade naive mind, I just spoke up and said, I don't understand. To me, it's just a difference in the color of skin. And she looked at me as if to say, how dare you say that? And said, Kurt, I'm afraid it goes a lot deeper than that. It was the first time I remember seeing hatred in the eyes of someone that I loved and looked up to concerning another race. Now, I want to be fair. That was 1980. It's hard for me to believe that was 38 years ago. How many of you would want everything you did 38 years ago held against you today, okay? So I don't know what's happened in their life since then. And I don't know what happened to them before they made that statement. I think all of us have had bad experiences that have made us say things that we later regretted. But I just remember in that moment that it just tore me apart. I, I, I've, always, I, I've always had such um, a, a tenderness in my heart for that, that whole issue of racism. And what's interesting is many of you know my journey. Kathy and I are both from northern Maine, okay? And when we were growing up, things have changed now, but when we were growing up, everyone basically looked like us, okay? We, we didn't grow up with any ethnic diversity at all. Everybody came, it seemed like, from England or from the Welsh and the, you know, the, the, the Isles. I mean, that was just the, kind of the way it was. We had no no ethnic diversity. I mean, every once in a while, when truck drivers would come through the area, you would see ethnic groups. For a while, there was an Air Force base that was located an hour away from where we were, and every once in a while, you would see them. But, but you just had no connection with them at all. And people laugh when I tell them, that my first conversation with a black man or any other ethnic group for that matter did not happen until I was 19 years old. That was my first year in Bible college. And I will never forget his name. He, he, he is, I mean he's still with us today. His name was Ivanhoe Ellis. We called him Joe. Lived right outside of Washington, D.C., he was on the other side of the hall. He was down a little bit from me, but I hung out in his room all the time. He hung out in my room all the time, and I loved him to death. Love him today. I haven't talked to him for like 31 years, but he left after uh, our first year. But I've kept in contact with him on Facebook. And I've often thought of how thankful I am that he was my first ethnic friend because he was patient with me. He was understanding, and he blessed my heart. Because I know, as naive as I was, I had to have said something that offended him. I know I had to have said something that he was angered with, but he took mercy and pity on me, and, and he realized that I had not been in that kind of setting before, and he worked with me, and I love him. And I'm going to tell you, folks, in all honesty, when I consider where I came from... <laughs> 
and where I am today. And I'm surrounded by the ethnic diversity. I can't help but think, God, you got a sense of humor. I'm serious. I mean, how many of you are glad God's got a sense of humor? He took a lily white Irish man from northern Maine and put him down right outside of Philadelphia and surrounded him with every nationality that you could ever imagine. That's God. <laughs> I, I have, it's puzzled me. I've come to some of you and I've said, why do you come here? I mean, if I was black, I wouldn't come here. I mean, I... <laughs> I know, like, but I have, what is it? And everybody just drawn by the Spirit of the Lord. God's good. I, I, I am blessed beyond what I deserve, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm going to tell you right now, I would never, never want to go back to, to being in a church where everyone was the same color. I wouldn't want that. That, that's not what heaven is going to look like. Why would I want the church to look like that? I love where we are. Amen. Amen. Well, you may be here more than an hour of the rate we're going. Listen, I got to pick this up. Racism, unfortunately, is alive and well. In the United States of America, 2018, and if you don't think it is, you've got another thing coming. You need to dig your head out of the sand because it is a lie. Now, listen, does it look different than it did 40, 50 years ago? Absolutely. I think everyone would admit we've made strides, but at the same time, racism is here. And uh, it's hard to believe. You start looking at this, that Jim Crow laws that enforce segregation in the southern United States were only done away with in 1965. That's only 53 years ago, folks. That's in our lifetime. You know, some of you think that racism ended at the end of the Civil War. It was only in our lifetime, the majority of us here, remember when these laws were reversed. It happened just before I was born. I was born in 67, but it happened in our life. Some of you remember when it happened. Some of you were living in the South when it happened. You remember the desegregation. I remember, some of you may remember this as well. A few years ago, Kathy and I went on a cruise to celebrate our 25th anniversary and it set sail out of Miami. And that morning, we got dressed really early you know we were excited ready to go and the cab wasn't coming for a while so we just sat on the edge, edge of the bed I turned the tv on and the movie the butler was playing now, I don't know how many of you've ever seen the butler starring Forrest Whitaker what a phenomenal actor it was just unbelievable and a great movie 
I say that kind of loosely. It was a good movie. Sometimes it was very hard to watch for those of you that do not know. I didn't see the beginning of it. We didn't see the end of it. We turned it on as they're moving into the Kennedy years. But he was a butler that served under several administrations. And we saw the Kennedy years, which many of you know, was some of the most turbulent years of our country's history as far as race is concerned. And of course, if you've seen the movie, you know that there is raw footage of the, uh, the buses being burned out and buildings being bombed. And then they portrayed some of the silent protests that African Americans would make in diners and in uh, various cafeterias at that time and the abuse that they experienced. And I just remember just sitting there and Kathy and I are just in silence, tears are streaming down my cheeks. And she said, I can't believe this happened in our country. And I said, I can't believe it happened in our lifetime. Again, some of you think it all ended in the Civil War. It wasn't that long ago that that we were dealing with these issues. Racism is alive. And sadly, it always will to one degree or another. It might get better in some ways, but it will get worse in other ways. It always will because as long as there are men and women who do not recognize or take seriously Imago Dei, that man is created in the image of God, there is always going to be elitism. It may come politically, it may be racially, educationally, economically, it may even be spiritually or sexually, but elitism will always be there unless you are anchored in the fact that all men and women, regardless to color, race, creed, or economic status, are created in the image of Almighty God. And here is all I can say is that I can't control what happens out there. But I can control what happens in here. And and we can keep growing in this. We can keep dealing with it here so that as we go out, we begin to change the world one heart at a time in Jesus' mighty name. That's how we're going to win this. It has to start here. Because it's the reality is that it outside of the context of the Christian faith, there is never going to be true reconciliation. There may be tolerance, but there'll never be reconciliation. Because until we come back to the original design that all men, say it with me, all men are created equal. Until we come back to that, you'll never have reconciliation. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've ripped ourselves from the image of God. And only when we're restored to the image of God through Jesus Christ can then we begin to be reconciled to one another in Jesus' name. You know, it's often overlooked is that one of the things that threatened the early church was racism to one extent or another. There's a very interesting story that's recorded in a letter that Paul wrote to Christians living in the city of Galatia that actually speaks to this issue. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn quickly with me to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to just go ahead for the time frame that we're in here. Galatians 2, verse number 11. This is Paul writing, and he says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Wow. Wow. 
because he was to be blamed. Those are strong words. I mean, that is tough language. Paul, in his letter to these Galatians, said, you know, when Peter was down in Antioch, there came a moment when I withstood him to his face. He was gangster. I withstood him to his face. I didn't know I'd get that kind of a charge. And he says, because he was to be blamed. He was to be condemned for what he had done. Now, listen, I don't have the time to get bogged down here with details. But in order for you to understand the context, then then i got to go into this a little bit. Many of you know that when the gospel of Jesus Christ was first ministered to, it came in the city of Jerusalem. So initially, everyone coming to Christ were Jews. Everyone. But then what is interesting is that when you come to Acts chapter 8, okay, there's something that takes place. Now, for those of you that don't know the Bible, Acts records for us the first 30 years of church history. And in Acts chapter 8, persecution broke out in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, these Jewish Christians, they begin to scatter. And they move into Judea. And then into Samaria. And that was controversial enough. Because many of you know that the Jews despised the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans were, in their mind, half-breeds. And that was years of bigotry that had started back in 722 B.C. When Assyria swallowed up Israel. And they brought Israelites back to Assyria and took Assyrians and took them back into Israel. And they began to intermarry and they created the Samaritans. And the Jews despised them, would have no dealings with them at all. But now the gospel is going into their nation and they're being saved. But then something remarkable happens in Acts chapter 10, a major shift. We find Peter on a roof at noontime and he's doing his devotions. And the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that he was hungry. He was hungry, nothing worse than doing your devotions when you're hungry. And this is what's going on. He's on the roof, he's doing his devotions, he's hungry, it's noontime. He just wants to get something to eat when all of a sudden he has a vision of a sheet. It's coming down out of heaven and he sees the four corners and it's speaking of the four corners of the earth. And in this sheet, he sees all of these animals that he's forbidden to eat. He sees pigs and he sees lobsters and he sees scallops and he sees, you know, certain birds that they were forbidden to eat. And he's hungry, but he knows he can't eat it. And then all of a sudden God says, rise up, Peter, kill it and eat it. And Peter said, what are you talking about? He says, God, I can't eat that. I've never eaten anything common or unclean before. And and I love it. God says, what I've cleansed, do not call common or unclean. And what he was saying is, Peter, I know that you're Jewish, but you're going to have to start warming up to the fact that I am about to break down all the barriers, and whoever calls upon my name is going to be saved. So all of those restrictions of the Old Testament that were meant to separate you from the rest of the world, they're done. Because now I'm embracing those who will call upon my name. Salvation is no longer going to be based upon tradition and keeping laws and eating the right things. But it's now going to be in Christ and in Christ alone. 
Now, many of you know the story that God is dealing with another man named Cornelius. Cornelius was an Italian man. He was a Roman centurion, and God brought them together. Peter leads his whole household to saving faith. The Holy Spirit is poured out, and this super Jew is now rubbing elbows with all the Gentiles. And they're loving on each other. And they are, you know, calling each other brother and sister. And then he learns something else. These Gentiles can cook. And they opened up Peter to a whole new world. They served him pork chops. And they served him some chitlins. And they served him some Spanish pork. And they served him some, you know, just some of these uh, pork ribs. And, and then they brought out the lobster and the scallops. And then they brought out the bacon. And they loved it so much that he wrapped his scallops in bacon. I mean, he was chowing down. And so these Gentiles, they are just loving on Peter. Peter's loving on them. And God's doing a great new work. Then we come to Galatians 2. And Paul is reflecting back on a time when Peter was at the church in Antioch. And Antioch was the center of all the Gentile missionary endeavors. And it was also Paul's home church. And understand, this is all taking place before Paul was even significant. Now, he is now, as he's writing it, but as he's reflecting back, Peter is still the man. Paul has not really taken his place of authority. But we read that something happened at this potluck that got Paul so righteously angered that he called out Peter on it. To his face. He didn't go on Facebook. He told him to his (laughs) face. He says, because he was to be condemned. What did he do? Verse number 12. For before certain men came from James, James was the brother of Jesus. He was also the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. For before certain men came from James, and they did not represent James on this. These were Jews. He, Peter, would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself fearing those who are of the circumcision, those who were Jews. So he is loving on the Gentiles, and they're just chowing down, and he's like, pass the pork. You know, I mean, he's just, come on, let's have some fun, and they're just talking about God. All of a sudden, some boys from the hood, (laughs) they show up from Jerusalem, and they look right down. And Peter got up, He withdrew and he separated himself for fear of offending his boys. And unfortunately, it didn't stop there because you go on. It says the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So Peter gets up and he withdraws himself from the Gentiles. And those that were with him, they got up and withdrew as well. Because where there is a mist in the pulpit, there is a fog in the pew. The the reality is, 
We would be further ahead in this nation if the pulpits, black, white, brown, and yellow, would say, I don't care what my nationality is, this is what the Word of God is telling us as believers to live as. I Listen, I... I hope you understand that the problem is we bring our white, we bring our black, we bring our Democrats, we bring our Republicans and our political views into this pulpit, and that's not the place for it. We open up the Word of God and we steer men and women in truth in Jesus' mighty name. But you know, it's interesting because it says... It, it says here that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. It doesn't name anybody else but Peter. But he says, even Barnabas. And so you can hear Paul just saying, this is a head scratcher. Even Barnabas, the last person you would ever expect to get carried away in it, even Barnabas did. Well, why would he say that? Well, because if you know anything about Barnabas, you know that he was the son of encouragement. That he was the glass half full, the silver lining kind of guy. He was the optimist. He was the one that was always bridging the gaps. He's the one that took Paul when nobody wanted him. And introduced them to the other believers and said, no, he's lit. He is the right thing. But, but now he's carried away. And another thing that we find out about him is, is uh, he's from Cyprus. Cyprus was a Gentile colony of Rome. So here is a man, Barnabas, who was raised with Gentiles, grew up with Gentiles, went to school with Gentiles, played ball with Gentiles. If there was anyone that should have been sympathetic, it was Barnabas. But even Barnabas got carried away, which tells you that that's how evil racism is. It can make a good man bad. Not not Barnabas. Barnabas wouldn't do this. But for the opportunity to satisfy his race and his people, Barnabas and all the Jewish men along with Peter violated the word of God. Listen to me, folks. God does not mind you celebrating your heritage. He does not mind you celebrating your race, your color, he doesn't mind you celebrating your history. Nothing wrong with it at all. But the moment that celebrating your heritage infringes upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've got a real problem. And that's what we've got to understand. That I can celebrate my Irish heritage, but if I'm with Irish people that want nothing to do with whoever, that's where I part company. Because... My loyalty is to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. And they all would have gotten away with this, except Paul called them out. In fact, he says in verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, and I love that, he didn't make it a racial issue. He made it a gospel issue. He said, you are not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And I turned to Peter, and before them all, I said, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why are you compelling these Gentiles to live as Jews now? 
He says, Peter, how dare you? For the last few months, you have been scarfing down every pork product that there is and living like a Gentile. And now, because of pressure, you want to make Gentiles become Jews. If you act like a fool in public, I'm going to call you out in public. He says, Peter, you are embarrassing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are making Christ look bad because he came for all races, all tribes, all tongues, all cultures. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of Almighty God. And all that we need to do to be saved is to acknowledge that we are sinners, that we need a Savior, and then submit our lives to God for transformation. And then He will give us the right to be called the sons and the daughters of the living God and cleanse us from all sin and all of our transgression. And you are undermining that message because of your racial, cultural bigotry and discrimination. And I'm calling you out on it. I mean, how would you like to have been a fly on the wall that day? You know, this is interesting. I had never considered this before, but many of us know Galatians 2 verse 20 by heart. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We know that, but did you realize that it was in this context Because Paul is saying to Peter, you've got the wrong identity. He says, you were crucified with Christ. And now you live your life by faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying, Peter, your identity is not in your culture, your color, or your class. Your identity is in Christ. And that's what we have to understand. It doesn't matter what the color of my skin is. My identity is not in that I am Irish, that I grew up in northern Maine. It is all about that I have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. That's my identity. (laughs) Many of you know the, the... pastor in Dallas, Dr. Tony Evans. I love Tony Evans. And he said it this way, truth overrides tradition. Black is beautiful when it's biblical and white is right when it agrees with the holy writ. Folks, can I tell you that there is a truth that transcends what color your skin is and where you hail from. It is the word of the living God Almighty. And if my race offends God, then I'm calling him out on it. In Jesus' name. Technically speaking, it is wrong to call yourself a white Christian. Technically speaking, it is wrong to call yourself a black Christian, a Hispanic Christian, a Filipino Christian. How many of you are thankful for the Filipinos that we have among us? Amen? Technically speaking, it's wrong to call yourself an Asian Christian or an African Christian because when you do, you make your race an adjective and your Christianity is the noun. Now go back to English and you'll remember that the function of an adjective is to modify the noun. So when you make your race or your culture the adjective, 
then your Christianity becomes your noun and you have to keep modifying your Christianity to look like your race or your culture that you describe it with. You see, folks, as long as you call yourself your race, defining your Christianity, then you've got to keep modifying and altering your Christianity to reflect your black, your white, your Hispanic. And that's why churches have become so segregated themselves. Folks, we have always got to keep our Christianity as the adjective so that if anything's got to be modified, it is my culture, it is my color, because I'm a child of God first in Jesus' name. My humanity is sacred. No doubt about it. Your humanity is sacred. But it doesn't define my Christianity. So celebrate your race. Celebrate your culture. Celebrate your history. But if it ever conflicts with Christ, it's wrong. And you have an obligation to stand for what is right. Because my allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. And Peter was rebuked by Paul to his face. Because Paul understood, as what we need to understand, is this is how you take back racial ground. Is that you call it out in the church first. Judgment must begin in the house of God. And so we have to. Somehow, all churches have got to come together on this issue. And whenever it manifest we've got to call it out immediately as uncomfortable as that may make you i guess it was seven or eight years ago now when we started seeing such a, an influx of racial racial diversity here at bethel and it was so funny because i had pastors that came and just said kurt you know what did you do who you know how did you target them i said i didn't target anybody I said, I just preached the gospel, and they came. You know? I, I, I said, that's all I've done. Now, some of you have been here through the transformation. You've seen it. <laughs> I always think of Sister Lorraine, because Sister Lorraine and her husband, who's since gone home to be with the Lord Lewis, for years, they were one of only a few African-American couples in our church. And they labored and they never gave up. And I just think, man, they sowed some wonderful seed and it's coming in and I'm thankful for that today. But some people are newer to the church and, and like they just, they're not used to this. And, and you know, just, I want to just say this. Not everyone who says something that may sound racially charged is actually racist. Sometimes it's just ignorance. They just don't, I mean, if you had always gone to one church where everyone was the same race, the same color, and you came into a diverse, it would be overwhelming to you. And we've had some people that came, and I remember one time I was greeting back here, and this, this precious elderly saint that just started coming to Bethel, she says, I've never been in a church like this. It's so refreshing to come in and to see all the diversity. And she says, you know, since I've been here, God has given me such a love for them. How do you handle that? I said, them? I said, did you need a special love for them? And I didn't rebuke her. I just said, 
It's those things that we've got to watch. Do you still refer to others as them? That shouldn't be. That's a, that's, that's a, you're, you are segregating in your mind. Um, I was talking to another individual once, and again, now this person doesn't come to Bethel, doesn't. I was having a conversation with him one day, and again, this I think was out of ignorance, but uh, we were just talking along, and, and they were explaining a situation that had happened, and and they said, yeah, and he was black. I mean, he was African-American. I mean, what do they like being called? And I said, well, I can't speak for them all. But I would assume that many of them would just prefer you call them by their name. She said, you know what I mean. And I said, I know what you mean. But why do we always have to assign a color? You know, and it was hard. This is somebody I love. And, but I can't let it die. I just can't forget about it. I, I've got, because I have a responsibility. And one person, this happened about five years ago. We were talking, and all of a sudden, right out of nowhere, they threw a racial slur out. And I said, let me tell you something. I may love you, but I will never have dealings with you again if you ever float that in front of me. And if I ever hear of a racial comment ever coming out of your mouth again, we're through because you are the problem You're not helping us in this hour. And this person got a little bit back in my face and said, do you think that they would defend you? I said, that's irrelevant. I said, I actually do think they would, but even if they didn't, I'm not going to tolerate it in my presence. And that's how we're going to have to deal with this. One step at a time. And that's going to make family gatherings awkward. Because some of you, you know, you still have people that throw it around and you just keep eating. But I'm, I'm challenging you right now. You stand for what is right in Jesus' name. Let's go. Racism undermines the gospel because it's where the gospel is that we become one in Christ. I got to finish this up. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Bless God. It is amazing how this culture has perverted that verse. Because we have people today saying that, see, even God is transgendered. There's neither male nor female. God is neither male nor female. That's how it's twisted our culture has become. And I don't want to get ahead. We're going to deal with some of those issues further in this series. But he's not saying that there's no longer Jews or Gentiles. 
He's not saying that there's no longer male and female. What he's saying there is that there is no preference. I'm not preferring one over another. There's no partiality. Whoever comes to me shall be saved in Jesus' name. And then, of course, I love Revelation 5 and verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, every tongue, and people, and nation. In Jesus' name. What a glorious day that is going to be when we gather around and every tribe and every tongue and every race and every nation glorifies the God in whose image we were created. You know what's interesting is, listen, I, I hate to break it to you, but if you're white, you're going to be white for all of eternity. So stop hanging out in the sun, okay? I just, like, I'm just, I'm being honest. If you're black, you're black forever. If you're Spanish, you're Spanish forever. If you're Filipino, you're going to be Filipino forever. You are eternally, racially profiled by God himself. That's the way God wanted you. That is the way you're going to be. But what is beautiful is around that throne, we represent the one God we serve. Jesus' name. Come on. Give God the praise. Stand to your feet. Oh, Lord Jesus. Bless God. How great is our God. Father in heaven. You know, I'm going to do something different. Somebody bring me a mic. Is there a... I, I would close in prayer because I don't want to. And he doesn't know I'm going to do this, so I'm putting him on the spot. George. George is my brother from another mother. And I'm telling you. I want you to pray. I'm going to have George close us out in prayer. Whatever's on your heart, brother. Didn't see this coming.
Bless God. Fight the good fight of faith in Jesus' name. God bless you, everybody. Enjoy your day.